Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for thy mercies and blessings of the week past. We thank thee that thy hand is upon us for good. And so, our Father, with gratitude and with joy, we come into thy presence. Commit ourselves afresh unto thee, to rejoice in all thy promises unto us in Jesus Christ, which are yea and amen. Bless us by thy word and by thy Holy Spirit, and grant us thy peace. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Our subject today is the last judgment, and our scripture from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 26th chapter, verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and he gave me meat. I was thirsty, and he gave me drink. I was a stranger, and he took me in. Naked, and he clothed me. I was sick, and he visited me. I was in prison, and he came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it, Unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, cursed, and everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not sick and in prison, and he visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or thirst, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as he did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. The Apostles' Creed says concerning the last judgment and Jesus Christ, that from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The Nicene Creed declares, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the kingdom, both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Judgment is declared to be continual throughout history. Indeed, the scripture declares that God judged the nations of the Old Testament world as a preparation for Christ's coming. Those orders that set themselves up as final orders were overturned by God, 
who declared through the mouth of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 21:27, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. Jesus Christ came and another great shaking was begun, another great overturning. And St. Paul declared concerning that second great judgment in Hebrews 12, 27, that the purpose of this continuing judgment in the gospel era is the removing of the things that are shaken as the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And these continual judgments culminate finally in the last judgment. The parable of our Lord in Matthew 25, 31 through 46 is the parable which above all others describes the last judgment. Now the humanists in the church do not believe in a literal second coming and a literal judgment and a literal heaven and hell. They deny that the Bible is true at these points as well as many others. But nonetheless, this parable is a favorite with them. They delight in preaching it. This morning, a visitor here from Grand Rapids told me that in one of the major churches of that city, one which is ostensibly a bastion of the Reformed faith, a professor from a Christian institution preached on this parable and declared that what Jesus Christ said was that inasmuch as he had done it unto one of the least of these, and he cited a number of names among them, Khrushchev, Castro, Marilyn Monroe, and others, ye have done it unto me. This kind of blasphemy is regularly preached. This parable is a favorite with the champions of the civil rights revolution. And they tell us that in this parable Christ is saying that what you do to these people in Harlem and Watts and what you do to the people in Africa and to the Viet Cong and to the Red Chinese and to the Bolsheviks, ye have done unto me. In other words, they, they declare. Christ identified himself with all these people of the world. And some have gone so far as to insist that Christ thereby included also one of the least of these, the homosexuals, the perverts of other varieties, the criminals in our penitentiaries, everyone. This, too, is affirmed by some of the most outstanding of biblical scholars today. The liberal biblical scholars who are primarily humanists. Are they right? This parable comes from a discourse that began with three questions asked by the disciples which are recorded for us in Matthew 24, in the third verse. Our Lord had just declared concerning the temple that there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He had spoken concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the disciples asked three questions. First, tell us. When shall these things be? When will the temple be destroyed and Jerusalem be destroyed? 
And the first part of the 24th chapter answers that question. The second question, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And our Lord made it clear that there was no sign of his coming, that the gospel would indeed be preached unto all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, that no man would know the day of his coming, and there would be no sign of it. And the third question concerning the end of the world. Now, since there was no sign of his coming when he discussed the matter of the end of the world, our Lord concluded at the end of the 24th chapter by declaring, Be also ready. Be in a continual state of readiness. For when the householder comes, when the Lord comes, how are you going to be prepared if at all times you're not living in terms of my commandments. And then he proceeded to give them three parables which indicated his judgment when he came upon his church. Hence his warning to the church, be in readiness. Because when I come, I will sift the church and separate those who are true believers from those who are only outwardly believers, but inwardly are apostate. The first parable, the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, both alike ostensibly believers, but the foolish virgins were left in the outer darkness. The second parable, the parable of the talents. And the man who did not use the talents, the man who sat in the church and never used the word of God, made it a living thing unto himself, who never had faith, even that which he had was taken away from him. And the word of the Lord was, Cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, it is a division in the church between the true church and the false church. And the third parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, our scripture. Our Lord again deals with the division within the church. Even one of the most blasphemous of commentators on this passage admits that the word that is here used, translated as separate, is in the Greek original a technical word which is used for the division by a shepherd of his flock at evening. The shepherds of that day, each evening, as they brought their flock in, divided the sheep and the goats as they bedded them for the night, because the restlessness of the goats would have caused nothing but panic among the sheep. So each evening, as the flock was brought in, there was a separation. The entire flock belonged to the shepherd. He was their shepherd and they followed him, at least Africa. But now there was a division at evening time. The obvious meaning, therefore, is that at eventide, at the end of the world, Jesus Christ as the great shepherd shall divide his church between the sheep and the goats. But why this strange principle of division? I was hungered, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, 
in person. Why this particular test? The test is confessional. It has to do with faith. But faith without works is dead. And so here there was a very real test of faith. Why? Our Lord declared in the Beatitudes that ye shall be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he declared as he sent the disciples out on their first mission that he sent them out like sheep before wolves. They should be persecuted and brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And the New Testament is full of admonition to be ready to entertain the saints, to give them shelter, to provide for their care. Why? Well, in those days, the hotels were the houses of prostitution. There's no place for a Christian to go for the night. And if you traveled, say, to Corinth or to Rome or to any strange city, and there was no one to take you in, you huddled against a door for the night with an eye half open to protect yourself against thieves. Because there was no place that was fit for you to stay. And then, because you were a Christian, you faced the rest. After the Jewish Roman War, 66 to 70 AD, the persecution of Christians became a chronic thing in the empire for centuries. But even before that time, there was persecution. And St. Paul spoke with real feeling concerning Onesiphorus, who, when St. Paul was in prison, visited him and cared for him and provided him clothing, a change of raiment, and who was not ashamed, St. Paul said, of my bonds, of my chains. especially after the Jewish-Roman War, took real courage to entertain a homeless Christian who came to your community, to visit him in prison and to clothe him and to feed him. You immediately identified yourself as a member of the Christian sect. And there might be the next week a knock on your door and the Roman soldiers there to take you before a court and to give you an opportunity either to offer incense before the emperor's image or to face prison and death yourself. In other words, our Lord was saying, to use a couple of very blunt modern expressions, put your money where your mouth is. Put up or shut up. If you're a believer, show it under fire. The days are coming, he was saying to the church. Want to identify yourself with the least of these, my brethren, my disciples, my believers, my members, is to brand yourself in the sight of the world. It is to mark yourself possibly for death also or for persecution. And if you are a member of me, you will identify yourself with the least of these, my brethren, even a cup of cold water given in my name to the least of these shall have its reward.
In other words, our Lord was saying, if you have faith, you're going to demonstrate it under thought. The indictment that Paul issued against some church members was that they did not discern the Lord's body either in the elements of the sacrament or in one another because as they came together they were contemptuous of their poor brethren in the congregation. They did not discern the Lord's body either in their brethren or in the elements. And Jesus Christ is saying in this parable, if you know me, you will know my true body and you will manifest your faith. And this parable today means this. It says to the people in the church today, I came to you and witnessed that your church was a false one, apostate. And there was a little group gathered together here and there in terms of the word of God. A little congregation standing, a humble church here, or a group of believers there, and you despised them, and you preferred your huge edifice. You knew me not. You knew me not. If you have faith, you will confess it. By discerning my body, by knowing that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. This then is no parable that gives any ground to these humanists. Rather, it is the indictment of them. It is a separation of them from Christ, and it declares that they have no part of him because they fail to discern the Lord's body. They have separated themselves from the true church and indeed have persecuted it and have identified Christ instead with the degenerate of the earth. These men deny what the Bible teaches concerning the last judgment and concerning heaven and hell. But it's not because they do not believe in judgment, heaven, and hell. All men do. God having created man and having created the universe and all things therein, everything that God made is an inescapable category of thought. Man's thinking can only be analogical. He can only think God's thoughts after him. He cannot think creatively. So that when man is in sin and rebellion against God, he takes the things that are of God and puts them to perverted use. He tries to build a kingdom, but he makes it the kingdom of man. must hammer home one point and make it 
an inescapable fact, an obvious fact to everyone, that they are the liberators, the saviors of the world. Thus they establish a savior themselves. Then he says it is even more important to drive home the point that the other class, capitalists, the Christians, the one you're waging war against, are the devils, the demonic group, so that all people conclude that all evil is incarnate in that group. so that you bring about a new order when you bring judgment upon that group. And when you have the world revolution, you bring judgment on this demonic group. And you send them to the slave camps, to hell, and you have heaven on earth. Marx, you see, believed, believed in a last judgment. He believed in a heaven and hell. He could not escape the God-given categories. He simply took and humanized them. And all your other humanists have similar ones. The existentialists have theirs. For them it will be heaven when everyone who is a moral absolutist, everyone who believes that God has an absolute law and there is an absolute right and wrong, is destroyed. That will be heaven. And their destruction will be the last judgment. And John Dewey had his heaven too. The great society was the first step to it. It would be the great community. And judgment would be when the hopelessly aristocratic ideas of Christianity would be destroyed. We could go on and cite all these secular concepts of judgment. But all of them agree on one thing. They transfer the final judgment and heaven and hell from God to man, from eternity to time. And they absolutize history and enthrone man as God. When they bring the final order down into history, they destroy history. They try to stop arrest history and they destroy liberty because they say here are the final truth the God of history as it were has incarnated itself in the dictatorship of the proletariat or the elite socialistic planners and so on and how can you differ with this And history, instead of being the place of development, of growth, of testing, is made into a vast slave camp. And the liberty of trial and error is denied. They are going to abolish sin by force. But the humanist at the utopias always become prisons. They insist on a finality which man is not capable of. They fail to create a heaven on earth. They are successful at only one thing, creating a hell on earth. But history refuses to stop, it refuses to terminate on man's orders because it runs in terms of God's time, not in terms of man's myths. 
And every time man tries to create a final order, it collapses underfoot as history marches on in terms of God's sovereign purpose. And all man's final orders come in with pride, and they go out in shame and destruction. But as the Nicene Creed declares, Jesus Christ, shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee that it is thy judgment which shall prevail that thou shalt confound the judgment of the Marxists, the Fabians, the Progressivists, all of man's foolish attempts to create a final order. We thank thee, our Father, that thy judgment upon us has been passed in Jesus Christ. The death sentence executed upon him and re-given in him the resurrection and the life, the joy of victory, the confidence that because thou art for us, who can be against us? Our God, how great thou art and we praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> yes. Uh, Russian, and then you point for um, and, uh, yes. Jesus says in answer the uh, question, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the angel of prophet, Stand in the holy place and then in front of the Who's so Yes. This passage has reference to the desecration of the temple before the fall of Jerusalem. So that our Lord was saying that when you see the temple so desecrated and understand the meaning of this, that this is the end. Then he goes on to say, then let him which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. In those days with the flat roofs in warm weather they lived on top of the house a good deal of the time in the summer because in the evening it was cool there, you could sleep there more, more readily. And so he says, when you get the news, take the outside staircase and leave. Head for the mountains. Don't go downstairs to pack up because this is the end of Jerusalem and Judea. No, this portion has reference to the fall of Jerusalem and not a single Christian died in the Jewish Roman war because they did take heed and they left yes have you read uh, the death of the church not yet I have uh, just gotten it uh, I browsed in it but I didn't have time to read it. I received my copy just last week today. You know, it's very interesting that uh, he showed that the humanists in taking over the Presbyterian Church, of course, were not satisfied to be able to set up their own external church, but it had to be a effect from within. Yes. And first you had the, the, in the ordination vows, those who uh, uh, 
denied when they took their Westminster uh, Confession on ordination. And now that they've rewritten the ordination vows, the question is, one, they have stolen the property that was left in trust yes. in the previous vows. Does this release the present ministers in the Presbyterian Church from their old vows? And in the future, they swore to take a new oath, which is uh, yet unknown, in mm -hmm. 1970 and uh, 1990. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are not released because the vow is taken not to men, but to God. And in the new confession of 1967, the very committee that worked it out, and it is a thoroughly Bardian confession, they deny the faith for essentially this kind of humanism that I have been describing, the total identification of Christ with humanity, in particular the most degenerate kind of humanity. It is interesting that members of the committee that wrote that confession are now saying it's only a stopgap measure. In other words, they want a more boldly socialistic, humanistic confession so that they've already indicated that this was a compromise. After all, it still has the forms of Christianity. So you can assume from that that the next confession will have even less of the paraphernalia of Christian terminology until it becomes openly the church that worships man. Any other questions? They recognize, though, apparently, God in the fact that they reduced the word from a capital W to a small w. They openly state that the scripture is not the, the, you know, the written word of God, mm -hmm. but uh, subject to all human failings. Mm -hmm. so they do recognize God, don't they, by, by mentioning, by reducing that, the word from capital W to small w. Their God basically is man, however, and they use the idea of, of God other than man as a limiting concept. In other words, they are, some of them, still ready to say there are limits to what man should do. There are certain things we'll call right and wrong. So we use God as a limiting concept so that we don't say anything goes. We're not ready to say that. So that uh, God is not the living God for them, but a philosophical limiting concept. Now, this is what he is for Karl Barth. And the Barman Declaration, which was included in this new confession, is a Bardian document, and I think may have been written by Karl Barth. This new confession goes a little further than the Barman Declaration. Now, already, as I indicated, there are voices that say this Bardianism is too conservative. Why maintain the form? Why use a limiting concept? So that uh, a confession of 1990, you see, is already planned. A confession that will do away with the necessity of confessing anything except yourself. Yes. 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 The I thou conception is an existentialist one, and in terms of existentialism, there is no God out there. Now, if you believe in the God of Scripture, then every fact in the universe is a personal fact because it was created by a personal God. 
It therefore has a meaning in terms of God. It isn't brute factuality. It isn't meaningless, unrelated data. Now, if you are an existentialist, you deny that there is a sovereign God. There's nothing out there except brute factuality, meaningless data. It is a world of it objects. And the only personality in the world that you really know is yourself. You're an I. And everything else out there is an it. Now, the thesis of these existentialists is that Christianity, the Bible, treats everything as an it because, of course, they refuse to acknowledge God's creator. So they say, if you go in terms of law, the Bible, obviously it's untrue, therefore obviously you're treating everything in terms of something that's non-existent, so your relationship is an it relationship. In other words, you're not having a personal relationship with your uh, husband or wife if you're going in terms of God's law. You're saying, I have to be faithful because God requires it, and this is what I believe to be true righteousness, and I want to be righteous, therefore I'm doing it. Well, that's an I-it relationship. That's immoral. How do you become moral? Well, you deny that there is any law, and you say the only thing that makes for any meaning in the world is myself and my love. So I will establish an I-thou relationship. Now, when it's an I-thou relationship, you can have one with your husband or wife or with any person in the neighborhood or with any man or woman. It can be a homosexual relationship. But it's a holy one because then it is personal. It is an I-thou relationship. It's you and your love, and that's the only law that exists. Now, this is the gospel in the church today. It's this I-thou relationship. Well, when you establish that, you have automatically declared that there is no God out there. There is no law out there. Everything goes. You've dissolved the family. You've dissolved marriage. You've dissolved the state. You've dissolved any kind of loyalty to anything except yourself. You've dissolved the whole world of God, at least in your imagination you have. Now, it is in terms of this, the I-Thou philosophy, that almost all of your pulpits are operating, that your marchers, for example, in New York and San Francisco are operating, that your hippies, your diggers, your provos, your beatniks, all of them are operating. This is the reigning philosophy of today. So anytime you hear this I-thou kind of talk, beware, you're dealing with a dangerous person. Yes? Could you give me that title and write an author of the book? Uh, oh yes, The Death of a Church by Carl McIntyre. It's available in paperback. Mm -hmm. Yes? In regards to our scripture, what is the Christian responsibility for other people? Is it just for people that are Christians? Yes. The scripture tells us uh, and I'm glad you asked that because while I've gone into this before, I think it's so important that it doesn't hurt to repeat it repeatedly. Now, the scripture declares that our moral relationship with other people is on a three-level basis. It is not a universal ethic, a universal morality. As now, Scripture declares that our moral 
relationship with other people is on a three-level basis. It is not a universal ethic, a universal morality, as the humanists declare. First, there is a level of law for our dealing with our family. Husbands, love your wives. Support them. He who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. Now, we cannot support the whole world. We cannot love the whole world. We're definitely not to love our neighbor's wife or discipline our neighbor's children, but our own. This alone is moral. So there's this one kind of moral uh, obligation, a sphere of law, the family. Then there is another area as we deal with other men, and that is the church. This is a kind of larger family, and we are to love the brethren. We are to provide for them in their wants, the deacons fund, and most churches. And we are to recognize that we have a common destiny and live in terms of that. Then there is a third kind of relationship with the world at large. We are uh, required to make known the word of God to them, to try to convert them. This isn't uh, everybody's individual duty, although when the opportunity presents itself, we certainly do have a requirement to witness. We have an obligation, Paul says, to be honest in all our dealings with them, to love our enemies, in the sense that we keep the law with regard to them, not to kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet. This is what it means to love our neighbor and our enemy. And when works of mercy uh, are required, as, for example, the Good Samaritan, he was an enemy to the Jews, yet he stopped, took care of this Jew who was by the wayside, made provision for him with the innkeeper and passed on. Now, he did not say, I'm going to associate with him for the rest of my life. It was just a work of mercy. This is to be our relationship towards the world. Yes? Yes, uh, they are apostate, and in a sense they are more objectionable to God than those who have never come in the church, because they are guilty of a fearful blasphemy. And certainly we are at war with them. They are at war with us. They are doing everything to drive the true faith out of existence. And I think uh, some of you perhaps have seen uh, reports lately, McIntyre has published them in the Christian Beacon, how through internal revenue tax exemption is being taken away from churches that are faithful to Scripture. More than one church in the past few years has had its tax exemption withdrawn and in one instance, a congregation was told, well, we'll grant you your exemption if you join the National Council. Now, what does the National Council do with internal revenue? But in other words, they will only recognize the humanistic church. Yes? I'm, I'm interested in finding out, um, has you felt, and I'm that, well, she obviously is not yet a Christian. She doesn't seem to have any awareness of doctrine. All we can do is to hope that having ostensibly broken with communism that in terms of God, she will now 
turn to the scripture and try to uh, understand what God has to say and who God really is. However, uh, it's easy to be cynical there, and I, as I, I am as yet skeptical. I, I want to be shown. However, Worm, Dr. Wormbrand has said that uh, one of the things that impressed him when he was working in the Soviet uh, areas was that he found so many people who knew nothing of the gospel but were sure there had to be a God and therefore were breaking with communism in terms of this vague kind of faith. It had to be a God. And so they'd come and ask him about uh, the faith, and when he would tell them the story, it was the first time they'd ever heard the story of Christ. They would listen with tears of joy. Yes? What would be the limits of a Christian's war against the, uh, the Lord's enemy? Exactly what do you mean, uh, well, in limits? Well, conducting warfare, or counter-warfare, against the Lord's enemy, what limits are imposed by God himself upon us if we conduct this warfare? Yes. Well, the warfare is to be conducted on God's terms. Now, the obligation we have is to create a Christian order. This means, therefore, we have an obligation to set up a society and work towards a society that will be Christian, in which the church will be Christian and in which the state will be Christian. Now, this means we enforce God's law, the death penalty. We do not permit abortion because this is murder and man does not have the right to kill. We create, therefore, a society established in terms of God's word. Now, in terms of that, I would say I do not believe an unbeliever should have a right to vote. He has a right to exist. He has an obligation to obey God's laws, and he'll be treated justly and fairly as long as he does. But one of the things that brought us into the past we are now was that all the laws we once had which required that a man believe in the scriptures, the infallible word of God, and in the doctrine of the Trinity, before he could vote in any and every one of the states of the United States, began to be treated more and more carelessly until enough people were voting because they weren't being strict about that regulation, the people finally did away with it. And until World War I, you know, some states still had such laws on their statute books, written into their constitution in uh, at least one case. Now, this is the, uh, the way we should operate. And, of course, this is the way they're operating because ultimately they are going to deny to us any right of legal existence and try to destroy us physically as well. You hold, therefore, that it's strictly a positive Christian building and only a... Uh, primary defensive measure that a Christian may take in this battle, or may, for instance, a, a Christian uh, send out spies, scouts, infiltration, and all the other tactics of warfare amongst the enemy, of course, not amongst the Christians, but amongst the enemy, who is avowedly an enemy of God. In warfare, yes, but otherwise it's futile. I think we'd already have wasted uh, millions documenting what the enemy is doing. And I think most Christians uh, today are sinning 
because they are spending so much time trying to document endlessly. Now, this is important in some cases, in a limited number, but in most cases, what does it add up to? We've got libraries full of documentation as to what the enemy is doing. What we need is to have Christians who will stand in terms of the faith and apply it. Yes. Well, I was thinking that uh, in terms of the two, uh, we can think of all kinds of things that are positive. In other words, the way you raise your children. Yes. I mean, this is a positive step. Teaching your children. A very important one. Right. And some of you heard the past few days one of the most remarkable men in the United States, Robert Thoburn, of the Fairfax Christian School in Fairfax, Virginia. And he is certainly doing remarkable things. And there isn't going to be a child that goes through his hands who isn't one of the strongest Christian soldiers you can imagine. Uh, I know he's going up to the 12th grade now. Uh, the students that he graduates from the 12th grade are going to be better, I know, in the college and all the So they could go for the 12th grade into his 12th graders, I think, will be far ahead of uh, our university graduates. After all, his 5th graders are taking, uh, are studying German at a more advanced level than college students. They start German in kindergarten at this particular school. Latin at the 5th grade, yes. What? No, he is an Orthodox Presbyterian minister. No. No, he's never discussed it. I've mentioned it to some of you at several meetings. I have been there and visited the school. Fairfax Christian School. It's a free enterprise school. He started five years ago last September with... Uh, a handful of students in an old building, and it is an old building, and today has two buildings, 560 students. Uh, they are colonial brick buildings, beautiful architecture, 21-acre campus. He's putting up another building because he had to turn away so many students this last fall. So he will have an 800 capacity this September. He will have buildings that are worth about 600000 He will pay for the buildings putting up this summer in two years. Oh, he gets... <laughs> he has quite a uh, list of them. He pays six to $10,000 for his teachers. He pays them not in terms of their academic work or years of experience, but in terms of quality. So the best teacher may be a new teacher, a year or two of experience, but if they're good, they get a, a promotion, a, a real raise in pay. So everyone is judged individually. He has a departmentalized kindergarten, and they start them as early as the fourth year. They teach them arithmetic as well as reading and German, and a number of other things. Fairfax, Virginia. No. Yes. Do you see anything between capitalism and Very definitely. A very, very definite and inescapable link. Apart from Christianity, capitalism has always been stillborn in every culture where it has developed because capitalism cannot exist without capital. Now, the accumulation of capital and its ability to become effective requires two things, hard work and thrift. Now, the combination of the two you do not find apart 
from Christianity. And, of course, the critics have pointed the finger at the Reformed tradition in particular and insisted that there is a link with Weber and Tawney and others. And they're right. Because many people have been compelled to work hard in many a slave state. But that's a different thing than hard work that is productive work that is voluntary work combined with thrift. This produces capitalization. And you do not have any real development of capitalism until you have capitalization. Now, we now are in a period of decapitalization. How are we decapitalizing? Because socialistic states everywhere in the world are destroying wealth. But the basic decapitalization before you have the destruction of wealth is the decapitalization of character. And this decapitalization has already taken place in most of the world. You have no longer the same character of work, the pride in work, the productivity. You no longer have the thrift the readiness to forego present pleasures in terms of a future purpose so that the basic decapitalization is of character and the basic capitalization is of character. And that's why the critics of capitalism have put their finger on the very source of the whole thing. They've said it has been Christianity and it has supremely been the Calvinists. And that's why their particular hatred of that tradition. Well, our time is up and we stand dismissed.